On this week's episode, I speak to Drew Silverstein, who's the CEO and founder of Amper Music. Amper is an artificial intelligence composer, performer, and producer that creates unique music tailored to any content instantly. So Drew actually is a former film and TV composer, and he talks to us about how he saw challenges and pain points to cost and time in helping clients of different sizes. And that's where Amper was born to actually solve the problem of trying to bring compositions to a mass volume at a more economical and faster pace. Because while he had his boutique and he was producing in, in L.A., he would notice that for most of the time that they couldn't accommodate some requests. They just were either going to be over budget or would just take too long. And in this podcast, we talk a lot about the evolution of how music is becoming more accessible and cheaper and faster produced through time. And I think as you hear, you'll see that there are some distinct things that AI might be able to do in the music industry. And there are some interesting challenges to come, but without any further delay. Hey, Drew, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So I cannot do justice to introducing you. So I was hoping you could introduce yourself to everyone and go from there. Sure. My name is Drew Silverstein. I am the co-founder and CEO of Amper Music, formerly a film and TV composer and now entrepreneur, working with my team to enable anyone around the world to be able to express themselves creatively through music. Awesome. I guess just the initial questions, what made you want to apply AI to the music industry? What problem were you looking to solve? Sure. So you know, as a composer in LA, we worked with a lot of directors and editors that would say to us, look, we love working with you when we have time and budget to focus on music as an artistic part of our process. Then they would say, for a lot of the content we create, we have neither of those two ingredients. And so they would ask us to do them favors and to you know, compose music for things that didn't have time or budget. And eventually we had to say no, because the economic model of a boutique studio didn't line up well with that of mass music licensing. Let me say, look, as composers, our job fundamentally is to translate music into emotion and emotion into music. And so we suggested, what if we could create a creative AI that gives you the same collaborative experience of working with us, but within the time and economic framework that you need. And there was a lot of excitement on our colleagues' part. And so five years ago, we began to work on what is now Amber. Very cool. So when you uh, initially launched the product and the first person actually listened to music generated by AI, what was the initial thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, when we first launched the first prototype, and this would have been in probably early 2015, the music was awful. Awful. I like to say it was like an, an MMMMMVP, which is to say like it was not really a viable product. But what we were aiming to do was not necessarily to have an amazing product. We were aiming to solve a couple key hypotheses around our endeavor, which were if we can build data around human emotion, around genre, around instrumentation, if we can use custom sample libraries that we would create to turn that into music, and if we can make it in a collaborative manner so that users can interact with the AI and change things, then we would think we have a business. Because certainly there's lots of music in our thesis five years ago, which I think wasn't novel, but certainly has come true, which is the scaling amount of content around the world and the importance of 
video over static content. Those things came true. And so once we were able to check off the box to say, look, we feel confident at this point that if we add time and capital and a brilliant team with the right direction, then we can make this thing actually good. That was the goal of the first version. And I think we were able to be very successful at checking those boxes because if we hadn't, then you know we would say, great, go back to the drawing board. Let's try to figure out a different approach. But we were fortunate that the way we were thinking about the problem ended up being, from our perspective, quite the right way to do it. Interesting. So when you mentioned you know, the data and you know, translating music into motion, emotion into music, I mean, I know bias in AI is a big topic. How does bias factor into AI and music? Yeah, so a couple of important things about Amper as kind of ground rules, so to speak. You know, we do not train Amper on existing audio. You know, we don't use Spotify or YouTube audio and just stream things and run it through a neural net and, and get the result. And the reason we don't do that is because typical uh, machine learning approaches, such as the one I described, um, are often designed to solve problems that have an objective answer. We're trying to figure out how do I win the chess game or do I have a broken bone or do I have cancer? There's a right way and a wrong way. There's a yes or no, it's binary outcome. And so all we need to worry about is did I get the right answer, not how did I get to the answer? And so having a black box of a neural network is not an issue. In music and in creativity, that's not the case. There is no right answer. It's entirely subjective. Everyone can listen to the same piece of music, have a different opinion, and you're correct. You can change your opinion and you're still correct. And so because of that, we had to work diligently to do something very different than what had been worked on before in AI Music, which is to say, we had to build our own data sets. So everyone at Amper, almost everyone, happens to be you know, a professional composer, musician, also who have advanced degrees or, or industry experience in their function. And what we said is, you know, if we are composers and we know how to write music, we should be able to build data that will then be used to teach Amper what it is to be happy or excited or what a guitar is or how instruments play together. All of these kind of things that as creatives and musicians, we just take for granted. And then from that, we're able to have Amper create music that is aligned with what the data set is supposed to do. And so from a bias perspective, you know, we're clearly defining in the data sets what something might be. So if we're talking about classic rock music, right? I would imagine that there's going to be a bias towards using an electric guitar because that's part of the framework. Um, if we're talking about hip hop, there's probably going to be an 808 in you know significant amount of the, uh, the tracks. But what I think is critical and the reason why the bias can be minimized in the end result is because the process is collaborative. And because anyone can look at the output that Amper's given them, and say, I like this, I don't like this, I want to make it more of that, change this, change that, as if it's a reflection of a normal human-to-human collaborative relationship. It allows us, regardless of where the process starts, to make sure that it ends where the user wants it to. And I think that's really critical because in a subjective process, you've got to be collaborative in order to get to the right outcome for that person. And to be collaborative, you get to have full contextual awareness. And to have full contextual awareness, you've got to know why you did what you did. And to do that, you've got to know what all the ingredients were. And so that's why we build data. We build our own sample library. We now have the world's largest audio sample library. We record every note of every instrument thousands of times to capture any possible you would ever perform that instrument. At this point, we have over 9,000 uniquely sampled instruments. It's quite massive. 
And between our descriptor data set, which is kind of the genre mood emotion side of things, and our sample library data, we're able to have full contextual awareness of why Ampric does what it does, and then be able to power that at a very granular degree so that anything is editable, anything is changeable, and ultimately in the service of getting the user to exactly what they want every time as quickly as possible. Interesting. Is there any feedback loop so that when somebody produces something that Amper understands that they hit the right spot, hit the right note, hit the right melody, whatnot? Yeah, so that's something that is certainly possible given the fact that Amper can have a back and forth collaborative relationship. And as you use Amper, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to build your tastes and your personality profiles. It's not something we've released publicly into the product yet given kind of our priorities internally. But fundamentally, there's no reason why we couldn't do that. And there's no reason why we likely won't. It's just a matter of timing and prioritization. Sure, that makes sense. It's interesting that you guys have actually recorded almost every single different instrument, different styles, trying to capture the human emotion. So when you're looking at the genre and the human emotion side of it, how does that get captured in the product? How does that get modeled so that you can understand an upbeat song versus melancholy? Yeah, so I mean, part of that is is our secret sauce. I can talk about it, but I but there's a level that I that I can't go sure, beyond. Sure. You know, what we do is we built a taxonomy and a syntax that is useful and universally applicable to any genre, any emotion, any instrument, etc. And what we do is we kind of think of the knowledge that's necessary to make music in two parts. On one side, you've got things that are just objectively true. And the other thing you've got subjective things. So as an example, as I mentioned, you know, music theory, the rules of music theory, you know, if, if you look at kind of historical tonal harmony, like those are rules. They can be broken, but they are rules. And so those are things where the creativity required to build the data sets isn't necessarily a huge leap because we're translating rules and data from one form to another. On the other hand, and where the importance of being a musician and a composer comes in, is when you're talking about instrumentation, orchestration, emotion, genre, those things become very subjective. And there's typically, you know, a loose agreement around what something probably is based on kind of societal norms and expectations, but the devil's in the details. And so how we define that is incredibly important in how we build that data. And then what's important is you've got the Amper algorithm that takes the data set and turns that into uh, music. And that you know, is probably the most important process. Besides the data, and you've got the algorithm, neither one of which is valuable without the other. And ultimately, when you know, we tap sets with metadata, so once we select the right data set or data sets to run through the algorithm, we do that, and we get a piece of what could be sheet music. Not actually sheet music, but it's the written notes. And then ultimately, we've got to turn that into audio because if it's just you know, MIDI or sheet music, it's not going to be useful to our customer base. And so then have a performance engine and a production engine that applies our samples, performs a piece of music, delivers it to the user. And what's amazing is all of that happens in a matter of seconds. So we can create a minute's worth of music in about five seconds, which is pretty incredible. Fully composed soup to nuts. Wow. So I guess from the standpoint of musicians, and obviously, you know, society doesn't like to go areas where they fear, right? They don't like, we don't like change as a species. We don't enjoy change. We like to do what we're used to. So musicians that, you know, think you have to sit down, do the process yourself. I mean, obviously you guys were composing and you hit a capacity constraint. You decide to start Amper. 
What about the people who are, I guess, might be resistant? Now I'm not talking particularly to maybe just Amper, but just people who are looking at the product and, and thinking, you know, I'm losing my artistic you know, say in the process. You know, I think our perspective very much so is that Amper should be a tool to be used by anyone to be able to express themselves creatively through music. And that tool can be wielded by the most musical individuals as well as the least musical individuals. You know, when we think about tools and technology in any industry, but we can talk about music specifically, technology in music has always served to do two things. It lowers the amount of time it takes to learn how to express oneself creatively, and it decreases the cost of purchasing the proper tools to express yourself. As an example, in the days of Bach, right, in the 1700s, in order to compose music, you had to know a lot. You had to know basically everything. To pay for it, you had to have a patron or a state sponsor or work for the church, right? And there was no recorded music. And so the amount of people that were composing you know, was relatively limited. And then we, let's jump ahead a couple centuries. And you know, all of a sudden in the, in the 1900s, at one point, we had analog recording and we had tools and we had tape. And then we jump ahead to the era of digital starting in the 80s. And then we have you know, the mobile kind of era of today. And what you see in each one of these evolutions is that, uh, we can think of Pro Tools as an example. When Pro Tools came out, it dramatically lowered the amount of knowledge it took for someone to create music and the cost of being able to do that. Now you can do a fully in-the-box recording session and mixing session. At this point, you can even make songs on your phone. You need to know very little. And so Amper is the next step in that evolution in that we say, look, if you are non-musical or less musical, but you have a creative idea and you want that to come out in music, then you can use Amper to gain a new ability. If you are musical, then you get to use Amper to harness a new superpower. And I think it's really critical because, you know, we hear a lot, you know, how does this affect my life? What do I do? And one thing that I encourage people to think about is that there's a difference between our job and our career. And our job is a set of tasks that we do. Our career is our ability to help others achieve their goals. And the set of tasks that we do will always change. The manner in which we complete a job will always change. And so the way we compose music 10 years than it is today, it's different today than it was 10 years ago. That's just part of the evolution of technology and of human society. But the value of helping someone achieve their goals and through music to build your career doesn't need to go away and won't because there's a difference between job, career, task, and value. And ultimately, you know, the difference is, is between a perspective that this is Skynet and the end of the world, which we very much believe it is not, and one in which we see a collaborative world where technology helps people, regardless of their background or access to resources or experience, be as successful in the creative realm as they hope to be. Interesting. So to piggyback off of that, everything with the way society and technology down to you know, cell phone, social media, we're able to get more faster. Friction's being reduced to you know, producing more news content out there. So when you're looking at AI's application into music, do you foresee a day that someone, obviously, if you're reducing the time it takes to produce the end result, can somebody get to the point where they're releasing new songs daily, weekly, because obviously the ability to do that is, I guess, the task of actually going through and composing and producing some pieces are lowered. Yeah, there's no reason why that's not possible today. And again, I think that goes to, you know, part of the core value of AI music in general, which is to say, you know, our goal is to help increase efficiency, 
and help you take an idea and turn it into reality as quickly and realistically as possible. And so the concept of being able to create and or release more music more quickly is part and parcel with kind of the premise of AI to begin with. It's fundamentally what AI exists. It's also to broaden the aperture, what technology exists to do in any vertical, right? I mean, think about how we create text documents today versus how we did 100 years ago. It's different, faster and easier and more successful. Think about how we grow food or how we make garments, all of these things. And I could, you could literally pick any industry and the analogy would work. But the point is that there's no reason why and no reason that you shouldn't be able to create as much music as you want and also be able to do that quickly, efficiently, and successfully insofar as success equals the vision that you had initially coming out in the ultimate product. So I guess to that point, much is made about you know job creation, job loss with AI. I guess in particular, when it comes to music, so obviously this is going to reduce time, decrease costs. You know, different people can now you know, produce music. Like for a musician who's actually using AI to, to produce their output, where will they spend... You know, maybe this is reducing 20, 30, 40%. I don't know what the delta is in terms of time safe, but where do they spend their time? Where do you envision their time going in terms of other skills? Yeah, so if we think about you know, musicians who are highly trained, who have a certain baseline of musical ability already, you know, we like to think that there are a large number of things that we do in the music making process that aren't necessarily the most creative parts. And in one world, Amper is able to take on those tasks and allow you to spend all of your time on the 70% of a project that actually is the most creative, that requires your unique human ability and skill the most. Equally, there's no reason why Amper and AI shouldn't help you be better at what you do. It's not just about reducing your time, but it's about giving you new opportunities. You could build AI collaborators that are trained on yourself. So you're now collaborating with the AI you. You can experiment more easily, more quickly, more affordably or through writer's block, try ideas in different manners. And you know, I think every new technological innovation, people tend to worry about you know, the worst that could happen. You know, when the synthesizers came out in the 80s, everyone said orchestras are going away. That didn't happen. When mobile studios came out, they said, well, what are going to happen to regular studios? They didn't go away. And so to that end, you know, I think what's important is that the world will still support artistic music creation. There will still be a demand. How we do it will be very different, but it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to embrace. And if you're a musician, there are so many opportunities, so many things you can do if you look at this as a tool, as a new technology, and not as something that is going to destroy your livelihood. I'm a big fan that we're going to apply our time to higher level tasks or creative side is going to be hard to mimic. So I agree with you. I think it's going to be interesting to see if somebody can leverage that time to actually produce more content, more music, whatever that might be, and actually get that in the hands of their fans and the users more frequently. So let's say a mainstream musician, you know, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, pick a famous musician going right now, leverages AI and that song ends up being as big as the other songs, right? So obviously that's going to help produce, you know, proof of AI that's going to you know, shift the ball forward. Is there any monetary implications? Like when you're looking, obviously like you're paying for a platform, but then obviously, you know, when somebody says seeing the residual, the royalty that could be, is that ever going to come into play? Or is that already a concern of how this gets monetized in the end user? Yeah. So again, if we split the user population into those who are using Amper to utilize functional music, 
right, which is music valued for its use case, but much more so than it's the collaboration creativity behind it, versus artists and musicians who use Amber to create artistic music, which is music valued for the collaboration and creativity going into it. On the functional music side, typically what we see are content creators, video editors, podcast creators, game developers, et cetera, you know, creating a piece of music and taking that more or less wholesale, putting it behind a piece of content. And we think we do a really, really good job of enabling that. And in those cases, the economics are, you know, not necessarily disruptive because we're able to follow existing models, existing business structures. With artists and musicians, what we say is if you use Amper as a creative ingredient in a clearly derivative and new work, then we will make no claim to the writers, the publishers, the copyright. We want this to be a tool. So if you take some stuff and you use it as if you use any other sample library. However, what you can't do is take an Amper song, you know, sing on top of it and say, I made all the music to this song. Because you didn't. You'd have to have a conversation with us directly to figure out what the contribution was of the technology and what the contribution wasn't. But when in doubt, we like to take the side of the creator. Because the whole point of this is to build a creative tool and to enable creative expression, not to get in the way of it. Makes sense. Yeah, and you're a composer, so I guess you wanted to solve a problem that you had yourself. Exactly. Interesting. I actually thought about this last night before uh, I went to sleep. I was thinking, and I don't know, this could be crazy wild. Tell me if it's insane, mad scientist type thing. But is it possible one day with the way AI is being built that when somebody does pre-release a piece of music, content, whatever it's going to form, it's going to come out, that it'll be adjusted in real time or near real time to a user's preference, meaning there'll be different versions, micro versions of a song that goes out because I like something a little bit different than you do, perhaps? Yeah, not only is it possible, we're already able to do that. Oh, wow. You know, it's part of the kind of new world that Amper opens up is when we can create massive amounts of content, whether it's new or derivative works, at a cost and time scale that are not prohibitive, then we're able to think about exactly what you've suggested as a realistic feature and a realistic value add to artist and or listener or, or fan. You know, historically, that would make no sense because the time and cost to make something personalized for everyone around the world is not realistic. But when Amper can do it, when technology enables that, then all of a sudden, we need to think about exactly things like you've suggested and say, how can we do something like this to help the creator and the fan? Yeah, that'll be really interesting because I think just as a, as a you know, consumer of music, I always listen to something and I, you know, and then somebody else will listen to it and you will compare notes and, you know, we all have different likes and dislikes. And I think if there's a way to tailor, I mean, Spotify is learning everything about my music license, trying to produce what it thinks I like. But if it could actually alter the music to what I do consume to little tiny degrees, I mean, that would be just, that's just the next level of actually me consuming more audio. Yeah, it's what we like to call personalization at a global scale. Yep. Global personalization. And it's only possible because of technologies like Amber. Very cool. Are there any things that stand out in terms of why people are not adopting or reasons that you hear on a daily basis that become you know, issues for adoption? Well, I think there are philosophical issues we've had to confront. And then there are practical realities of the capability of the platform. And on the former, so much of our role and of my job on a day-to-day basis is speaking with people like you or individuals or journalists or students, musicians, as many people as I can to help explain what this can do, this technology, and frankly, what it can't do. 
because we typically find when people don't understand something, they're afraid of it. It's a natural part of human evolution. It's why we didn't touch fire. It's why we didn't go into the dark cave and get eaten by a giant bear. And when we're afraid of things and you know, we tend to put them down, avoid them, you know, try to preserve ourselves. And to combat that, the first thing we've got to do is remove the opaqueness and replace it with transparency. Say, again, here's what we believe. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. Here's what we'll be able to do one day. And here's what we'll never be able to do. And then here's, you know, how this can be utilized. And then along with that, we've got to listen. And we've got to make sure that we understand what people's fears are and what their concerns are so that we can have a conversation. And the goal with these conversations is very rarely to convince someone that we're right, because we'll never always win that battle. I hope we do, but that's not the goal. The goal is to educate someone enough that we have a shared fact set, a shared common knowledge that we can then have an educated conversation on a debate. And you don't have to agree with us. I hope you will. And I will make every argument possible to make that happen. But what's important is that we agree on facts and then we use that as the foundation of a larger conversation. On the latter side, there are features of the product that have to be good and successful enough to warrant anyone deciding to use this in the first place. And so the three kind of product pillars that we really focus on are music quality, rendering speed, and user control. And to kind of go into each one of those a little bit, you know, quality, the music must be good to be useful. Otherwise, you know, we have a cool toy, but we don't have a commercially useful solution. And I think that's been a really big historical barrier to AI music becoming successful because a lot of it sounds like, you know, computers. And that doesn't necessarily make it a successful commercial product. On the speed side, we have to be able to make music extremely quickly because otherwise, again, we don't have a viable solution and tool. You've got to sit there for 10 hours to get a minute of music, right? And so the fact that we can create music extremely quickly solves that. And then the last is control, right? We've got to be able to give you enough options in terms of what Amper's knowledge base is. I think Amper can create over a thousand different types of music at this point, each time getting something unique. But also making sure, as I mentioned earlier, that the user can control what happens to the music after they've gotten it to whatever degree they'd like. Do they want to control the music down to the note? Do they want to have very, very broad feedback? And making sure that quality, speed, and control are sufficient, and not only sufficient, but excellent, is critical. And once we pass the threshold for those three areas, we were able to have a product that became commercially successful and commercially viable before that. Until we crossed those three thresholds, you know, what we were working on had a lot of potential, wasn't a valuable solution. And so the combination of speaking with people to make sure that the intellectual and emotional conversation and feeling is addressed with the practical reality of needing to build an actually valuable solution and not just a cool research experiment or toy ultimately uh, have led us to a point today where we're able to provide a lot of value to anyone from you know video editors to composers. I know you guys have built your own data sets. You mentioned you don't do training at all. Do you envision the evolution being that derivative data sets will be because there is machine learning, that it is self-learning and it produces different types of data sets for it to use or work with? Yeah, so to be clear, 
you know, we don't do that for a host of things. And I haven't even gotten into the copyright and legal issues, which are also a component of why we've taken the path we've taken. doesn't mean we can't do that. And in fact, there will be times when we we'll work with partners who will say, look, we have the rights or I have the rights to this set of music or this IP it's because maybe it's mine or maybe I've got control of it or something. And I want Amper actively to learn what the DNA of this playlist is, of this album, this artist is, to then be able to make music that sounds like that. And we can do that. And we've been very successful in the partnerships that we've done on that. But because there are you know, a host of legal issues around that, copyright infringement, ownership, payment, recognition, we are very careful about, one, not offering that publicly. It's just kind of a general individual. And two, making sure that the individual or company that wants us to do this thing have the rights and are allowed to ask us to do that. Because the last thing we want to do is utilize technology in a way that undercuts what kind of our interpretation of law is. That was actually going to be the next area that I was curious about was the copyright issues. Because I, you know, obviously thinking about this, somebody not in the industry, I was thinking copyright's got to be one of the biggest challenges of, I guess, making derivative forms of any piece of music. But also, you know, what happens if AI actually accidentally creates something that does end up infringing you know, something that's already out there because there's going to be so much volume of being produced. Who's actually able to monitor and police that? Yeah. So with copyright in the U.S., and I'll speak to the U.S. law because that's what I'm most familiar with. Look at infringement, we consider two variables, access and intent. And what that means is, did the potential infringer have access to the material that they're accused of infringing upon? And or do they have any intent to use that or to be inspired by it? And the only surefire way to make sure that the answer is there is no copyright infringement is to have zero access and zero intent. Anything else becomes a gray area of the lawsuit. And as we've seen in especially recent cases, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of disagreement in terms of where that line is. But if there is zero access and zero intent, then it's not an interpretation. It's just factual that there cannot be infringement. And that is why, again, we don't train on existing audio. You know, the data sets define music at a level that's not phrases. It's not things that people are going to say, oh, well, you, that data was derived from this. It's, it's abstract data that beauty of Amper is it turns it into music. And so we solve access in that manner. And then it, with intent, one of the reasons why you know, our descriptors, which again are the kind of the genre mood combinations that users can use as input, are genre and emotion and adjectives is because those things inherently are broad enough that no one owns them, right? You can't say, if I said I want to make happy orchestral hip-hop music, right? No one's going to be like, oh, you used the word happy orchestral. You clearly intended to do because it's, it's an adjective. It's a very much a high-level piece of information that's being used, as opposed to saying, you know, I'd like Beyonce, all the single ladies, please make something like that. Because then we get into an issue of intent that... Whether or not Amper knows what that meant, you know, it's no longer 100% clear cut that there was no connection. And so again, a lot of these things I mentioned, we choose to do intentionally, not because we can't do the alternative, but because we think it's the right way to approach the problem. Yeah, I mean, certainly you're eliminating, you know, the down the road issues of intent and access by not having, you know, your platform being trained on you know, outside data sets. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You have Amper now, you're a musician. 
if you're going to put on your like, you know, future hat and kind of look into the crystal ball, like where do you see Amper in terms of capabilities? Like how far does it go like down the road in the evolution of what you're currently doing? Yeah. So our goal is in a few years time to be able to make sure that every piece of music created around the world is made by or in collaboration with the technology and products that we develop. We'd like Amper, in essence, be the fundamental infrastructure of music creation in the 21st century so that anyone who makes music can use Amper a little bit, sprinkled here and there to help with the process. And the same way we might use Spellcheck, writing a document in Microsoft Word. We don't think about it, but that's technology helping us. All the way to the other of the extreme, to where someone might need a lot of help and a lot of assistance turning a piece of music into, or turning an idea into reality. And so if and when we're able to have our technology as the foundational infrastructure, that will mean that you know, every piece of music will be by or with our technology. And if that's the case, then what I think we'll see is an amazing expansion of how many people are able to make music, a democratization of the skill set, and who knows what we will be able to, as a society, accomplish because of these things that we don't even know today, which is often the case with many new technologies. Very cool. I actually think, uh, you know, we talked about it, I guess, a week or two ago about uh, our podcast. I think I have our the sound guy who uh, does work for us. He's actually looking at the product, trying to see how he's going to uh, use it to add some form of AI music to the podcast because I think it'd be really you know relevant to what we're trying to do to actually you know apply it to what we're actually doing at some level. Fantastic! And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see. Uh, I do not have any musical capabilities. I, I do not understand music. My six year old takes piano, and my wife says, "How can you not be able to help her?" And I just cannot remember the notes, the steps, or anything in between. So I feel like this is the perfect product for somebody like me to produce. And express myself. Totally. You would see if you used Amper, Amper score, you know, that matter of seconds, you can make a professional piece of music based on solely what you know. That's awesome. One question I like to ask at the end of the podcast is you've actually been in the process now a while as an entrepreneur. If you're looking back, learning lessons that you wish you could have known from the start of the process, is there anything that stands out where you could have looked back, done something different or something that you look at and go, hey, I wish I knew this from the start of this process that you would have done differently? Oh, Lord, yes. You know, I often joke with friends, I can't wait to start another company one day just because I've learned so much in this one that I'll save myself the heartache of making so many mistakes the next time around. You know, it's everything from strategy to execution, from conceptualization to go-to-market strategy to personal maintenance. And, you know, as we know very well, Building things from scratch is not easy. It takes a lot of time and effort. And it is, as everyone says, a marathon and not a sprint. You've got to make sure that you are taking care of yourself appropriately to run that marathon. You can't just show up, run a couple of wind sprints and think you're ready to go. And so what I would say to anyone who is in the position to start a business or build a thing is to know that this is hard. If it was easy, everyone else would do it. It's really hard. But I tend to believe that if you are hardworking and smart, and you have the right perspective, and you're a nice person, people get along, eventually the chips will fall in your favor. And there's a lot of luck involved, but you've got to do everything you can to make sure that when you do get those breaks, you're in a position to capitalize on. Very cool. I guess you're dealing with Amper, so you're dealing with music all day as your core business. In your alone time, are you still involved in music? Do you still compose? Is it something that you're able to do outside of the office? You know, I actually enjoy music much more now than I did when I was a composer. 
because, you know, as a composer, it was my job. So, you know, 14, 15 hours a day, I was writing music. And so the last thing I would want to do when I got home was play music because that was what I did, which has its pros and its cons. But now, you know, what I find is the creative itch tends to get satiated by the challenges of building a business, right? The creative challenge is still there. And then when I get home, because I haven't been writing music all day, I actually want to play music. So I'm, I'm much more active as a musician now outside of work than I was when I was um, a full-time composer. Very cool. I'm blown away with uh, what Amper can do and where things are going to go. I'm going to be curious to see, uh, hopefully maybe have you on down the road and see how things have changed. I actually have uh, somebody who's coming in from the AI art side to talk about how artists you know, in a different medium are taking advantage of actually like painting and sculptures. And mm. um, I think it's going to be an interesting you know, little area to focus on how creative and AI is kind of partnering together. So I appreciate you being on. Of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. 